being in here, it's so fucking quiet. Absolutely. Hello, and thanks for tuning in to As Word Spreads, a BC podcast by youth for youth. Welcome to episode six of As Word Spreads. I'm Shay. And I'm Brooklyn, and we're your hosts. This episode, we share our perspective on and expectations for MLA Melanie Mark, the person widely considered the most likely candidate to take over the MCFD, or the Ministry of Children and Family Development, in the new provincial government. We also discuss what we've been calling Adoption Tinder, a portal on the MCFD website that allows prospective adoptive parents to scroll through personal ads for kids up for adoption, and we share a bit of our experiences. Thank you for listening. With the new BC provincial government sworn in on July 18th comes a new Minister of Children and Family Development, and many are predicting it will be MLA and East Van politician Melanie Mark. Many people are excited at the idea of MLA Mark as the new head for MCFD. For those who might not know who Miss Mark is, let us first remember that she's not to be confused with Carol James, who is the first Métis Aboriginal woman elected on behalf of the New Democratic Party to represent Victoria Beacon Hill in BC Legislature. No, Melanie Mark is born of Nishka, Gitsan, Cree, Ojibwe, and Scottish blood. Miss Mark was elected as the first female First Nations person to serve in the Legislative Assembly of BC as an NDP delegate on behalf of the Vancouver Mount Pleasant area in 2016. MLA Mark is the epitome of what happens when you combine lived experience with post-secondary education and a passion to persevere despite continued hardships because it's what needs to be done. She's volunteered with countless organizations that cater to the highest at-risk demographics of our city, our youth, our Indigenous, and our women. Melanie Mark, just like other children with ministry care experience, had a rough beginning. The Ministry of Children and Family Development, to be realistic, has its reasons for bringing most of us into care, and MLA Mark's history is available online to whomever may be interested. Instead of going into that, I want to encourage other youth with ministry experience to continue pursuing the issues they feel most connected to with Miss Mark's experience as guidance. Like many children in her situation, Melanie started out life learning to reject the indigenous blood inside her. After just barely making it out of high school, she took a job at YVR as an art interpreter for Bill Reed, which led Melanie to embrace her once unappreciated culture. It's during this time that she had a defining moment of self-actualization that led to her earning a degree in criminology at Douglas College, ultimately unlocking the doors of opportunity. After working with Native counseling groups and sexually exploited Aboriginal women, Melanie was hired as Deputy Representative at BC's Office Representative for Children and Youth. To quote Mary Ellen Terpella Fond, she's a shining star example of what resilience means, which is never choosing to be a passive victim even though she had ample cause to step back and say, I give up. Emily Marks, also not afraid to speak up. Her discontent has been heard on record while speaking of how Christy Clark's Liberal government has been failing the basic needs of youth who are in care. She's not afraid to raise awareness to the strains intergenerational trauma has left on Indigenous families and communities on the whole. She sees the inaction, the status quo, the stand-pat budgets, and the lack of commitment. After learning all I have of Melanie Mark, I truly have to say I'm inspired by her tough spirit, and I believe she can do incredible things as the Minister of Children and Family Development. 
She's the perfect example of why lived experience is also valuable in this field. Anyone can be educated and earn a degree in something like youth work, but you'll never really understand what being on the side of the government service feels like. Brooklyn, what are some of your expectations for the incoming Minister of Children and Family Development, whoever might turn out to be? One of my expectations is hopefully that they will do an entire overhaul of the system, first starting with benefiting youth and children who are in care instead of benefiting those who are taking care of them. Absolutely. While my MLA Mark seems to be the brightest shining option for Horgan to name as the Minister of Children and Family Development, the Georgia Strait has also hypothesized Selena Robinson, Jennifer Rice, and Doug Donaldson that they have a shot at the title as well. Selena Robinson has been MLA for Coquitlam Mallardville since 2013 and is a former city councillor. According to the Georgia Strait, John Horgan might even give her one of the more challenging portfolios, like children and family development, because she'll be better than most at fending off BC Liberal attacks. As former city councillor, MLA Robinson advocated for the rights of taxpayers, fought to protect the health of children and families by introducing a local ban on cosmetic pesticides, and worked to improve access for people with disabilities as chair of the Coquitlam Universal Access Ability Advisory Committee. Jennifer Rice has been MLA for the North Coast since 2013. She currently serves as the opposition spokesperson for rural and northern health as a deputy spokesperson for children and family development. MLA Rice has played an important role in creating healthy, inclusive, and sustainable communities. During her time working with T. Buck Suzuki Environment Foundation, she worked tirelessly to, to protect BC's interests by opposing the Enbridge Northern Gateway Pipeline proposal. Last but not least, Doug Donaldson, who has served as the MLA for Stikin since 2009. Currently, MLA Donaldson is the official opposition spokesperson for energy and mining but formerly had the position of official opposition spokesperson for children and family development prior to Melanie Mark. The Georgia Strait predicts that MLA Donaldson may be appointed as a parliamentary secretary to the minister for Indigenous-related issues, though. Who are you rooting for and why? Uh, I'm rooting for Melanie Mark, as she seems to have the most experience all round, and with experience comes greater things than with just a degree. Absolutely. I definitely agree that there needs to be a, a piece of lived experience in the person who's supposed to be in charge of this ministry. So enough about NCFD for a moment. As I'm sure our listeners are aware, foster homes are one of the biggest ways that social workers house their clients, although group homes and other alternatives usually suffice in a jam. But what you might not be aware of is that before a child is placed into a foster home, we go through an interview with the foster parents guided by the social worker. As the kid in care, you're basically told there's this great guy, lady, or family who just had a room open up, which for me always felt if I was being offered a long-term stay at a hotel built by MCFD in the room of a stranger's house rather than a chance at building a new family connections. Your worker kindly tells you that they'd like you to meet this family, and as the youth, you're never really given the ability to choose whether or not there's a meeting. You just get taken there and are expected to be polite. In my experience, while the interview system helps with the initial anxieties of moving in with strangers, it really doesn't prepare you for what the person might be like once your social worker leaves, and you quickly realize that you're the one being interviewed rather than the one conducting the interview. Sometimes it feels like an audition. 
They're the judges and you have to wow them. When I first went into care at six years old, I wasn't given the chance of an interview because I was too young and didn't show any warning signs. I was found a placement at 14. It was an hour-long conversation with an elderly woman who had two semi-independent spaces available in the basement suite downstairs. She had a thick Argentinian accent and whistled while talking often because of the air trying to escape. She didn't ease my anxieties when she promised to treat me differently due to my age, as I was too young to be in a semi-independent placement. I didn't actually believe my worker intended to place me there until after we left and she asked what I thought. I was honest that it didn't feel like a good fit. From the first moment we parked in front of the house, it really just fell off. There were bars on the windows only for the basement suite where I was to stay. And once I was given the full tour, I realized that there were locks on the the downstairs food storage, but not upstairs, like a bear might break in. That's when I first realized that the choice I got to make was just a facade. I really hate to be the bearer of bad news, I was told, but this is the only placement available for you. I wouldn't be able to tell you how long you'd have to wait for the next one to open up, but we can't let you stay at your friends for much longer, so you move in next week. In that moment, I felt confused and betrayed. Sure, my social worker might have genuinely cared about my opinion, but at the end of the day, if it interfered or made their already stacked caseload harder to deal with, it really felt like they would have rather I kept quiet. To wrap up what was easily the the worst six months of my time in care, I was right when my gut told me it wouldn't work. I ran into issues at every passing. For instance, there was a laundry schedule everyone had to follow, but that didn't mean I could do laundry when I wanted on my day. I had to make sure her son who lived upstairs was home because he held the keys to the cupboard downstairs that had the laundry soap in it. When I had friends over, quite often that foster mom would hover and eavesdrop in the basement suite that she otherwise avoided. Every night at 10 p.m., the door leading upstairs was locked and an alarm was put on it. The same thing happened to another foster kid I knew. She was locked in the basement away from the family upstairs. If I needed anything, I had to phone upstairs and wait for an answer. That included when I wanted to leave for school in the morning because there was an alarm on every door and window, which absolutely really sucked because I had a hard enough time trying to get up already and out the door on time as it was. When I had to phone her three or four times with no response while I heard the phone ring upstairs, it was just not, not a good situation for a kid at all. She didn't pick up, I'd have no choice but to escape, and head to school in a rage, and I let her deal with the aftermath of a blaring alarm. She wouldn't turn the heat on downstairs, and I was there in the fall and winter months, so it got cold. When I brought it up with my social worker, a personal space heater was offered to me. I was also right when I voiced my worries that she wasn't going to keep her word regarding treating me differently than her own semi-independent youth. It was just something she needed to make sure my social worker heard loud enough that it went into my file when I tried to say otherwise later. And after I admitted to being uneasy about the placement before I moved in, it's like I had given up my right to a fair trial. No matter what issue came up, I'd converse with my social worker, usually while the foster parent would eavesdrop, making it uncomfortable enough that I didn't want to raise any of my grievances. The worker would go upstairs and talk to the foster parent privately, of course, about my concerns, and the foster parent would always find a way to bend the truth about my living conditions. Honestly, I'd just like to know why I was always treated like the criminal when my foster parent was making her mortgage and BMW car payments with the money intended to be used for my welfare. The last straw broke when she had her second older son move into a bedroom in the basement suite with myself and another female. By this time I was 15, and he was over 50, and would walk downstairs in his briefs and an open house coat on. I wasn't introduced to him or notified beforehand. I just went home one day and he was there. Even after telling my social worker that there was this new strange man in my space, my social worker refused to move me. My foster parent just apologized for not letting my worker know beforehand, and that was enough for my worker. I was just lucky that my foster parent started to dislike me as much as I loathed her, because this inappropriate situation meant that I needed a new placement.
but I didn't get one. And instead of improving, things began to deteriorate. For long, I was losing sleep, and I felt so uncomfortable with a roommate three times my age that I would move furniture around to barricade myself in at night. I started missing school, and one day my foster parent was so frustrated that she told me she didn't care whether or not I attended. At 15, that was all the permission I needed to drop out, which I did from December to April that year. Later, when family friends took me in as a foster kid, I was able to turn things around and I even made the honor roll for all of grade 11. You might be asking yourself what had changed. Well, not only did I have a say in where I was going, but the people genuinely cared for my well-being. I had the opportunity to have the same familial issues as other kids, like siblings, who got into my stuff instead of having a foster parent who had their own agenda and could care less about my grades or nutrition, as long as the checks kept coming. This may sound callous, but to many former foster kids you speak to, this also sounds very similar. With a stable foster home, only then was I able to believe in myself, because I knew that others were doing the same, which is so incredibly important but hard to do when you feel stuck in a bad place, only worth the paycheck attached. I finally felt like a normal kid. It absolutely showed, because from then on, I'd only talk to my social worker maybe twice on the phone for years. I was deemed low risk, until I approached age 19, that is, when everything started to crumble as all the support I needed was about to be taken away. But that's a story for another episode. I guess what I'm trying to get at is that I wish social workers could collaborate with their youth on their placements more and listen to their concerns as if they actually mattered. I know for a fact there's a lot of foster families that consist of good people, and I wish that NCFD could be more picky about the people they choose as foster parents, like insisting they have a job or appropriate skills so that they can take care of themselves before taking in a foster kid. I don't think it's too far-fetched to even say prospective adoptive parents should be auditioning for their kids and not the other way around. To close off this episode, we have a quick roundup of news from the youth in and from care community. Got a tip for the next episode? Tweet us at AsWordSpreads, or find us on Facebook, or even send us your news at info at firstcallbc.org. We hope you're enjoying your summer. Do you know all youth in foster care in Vancouver have access to free leisure passes, which includes the pools and skating rinks in the city? Municipalities such as Burnaby and Surrey offer similar programs, so it's worth checking out. It never hurts to ask. We also heard through the grapevine that youth in care can even access community center gyms for free. The Y in Prince George also offers free access to all youth over the summer months. Let us know if you hear of any similar programs elsewhere in BC. Free legal stuff, sorta. Joseph Fearon, a lawyer with Presler Law 1-800-JUSTICE, is graciously offering preliminary legal information for youth in and from foster care. He can only help direct those in need of legal counsel to an appropriate lawyer or legal service. But if you would like more information, Joseph can be reached at J-F-E-A-R-O-N at P-R-E-S-Z-L-E-R-L-A-W dot com. Of course, don't forget the rep's office, the representative of children and youth. They help with legal advocacy on behalf of youth in foster care here in BC and can be reached with their toll-free rep line 1-800-476-3933 or at talktotherep.ca. 
That girl in the tent in Surrey. Do you remember the girl in the tent? Her name is Santana, and she was found dead late last year, shortly after aging out of foster care. She was just another foster care statistic until her sister Savannah spoke recently to the Vancouver Sun's Lori Colbert to honor the memory of Santana's life, and we suggest you read the story, which we've included in the links below. Mentioned in the article is that the BC Coroner Service will publish a report later this year tracking the outcomes of youth who age out of foster care. Unfortunately, by the time these youth arrive at the coroner's office, they're already dead. But at least we'll have more data to better make our case. BC Child and Youth in Care Week. Was it us or did BC Child Youth in Care Week underwhelm this year? A lot of people put a lot of work into putting on really cool events across BC, but we're looking in particular at the pledge many politicians made before the May 9th election to attend at least one BC Child and Youth in Care Week event. We can't confirm that even one of those 82 politicians made it to an event. Are we wrong? Let us know. 41 of those candidates have since been elected and showing up at a party was a freebie. We have real demands for you. We expect answers. See the list of these no-shows in the links below. Foster kids on the street. Many foster kids age out of the system and move straight onto the street. Big surprise, right? As more counts of homeless youth are being done in BC, people are gradually coming around to realize that when you suddenly have no home at age 19, yes, chances are you will end up on the street. Former youth in care and full-time Kamloops superhero Catherine McFarland worked out a couple years ago that 40% of the homeless youth in Kamloops are former youth in care. Last year she did a more comprehensive count and found that more than half of those surveyed, those who had been homeless at some point, had also been in foster care. A full quarter, 25% of all the youth with homeless experience surveyed aged out of foster care at 19. So now we know where these homeless youth are coming from. If homeless youth had been in foster care was also something looked at here in Vancouver during last year's big homeless count, and the corresponding stats for Metro Vancouver and the Fraser Valley will be released soon, so stay tuned. The next round of Strive begins on August 8th. Strive is a 12-week program for North Shore and Vancouver youth ages 17 to 24 who are transitioning or have transitioned out of foster care and are working less than 20 hours per week. Strive is an awesome program run by the YWCA and helps with life and employability skills so you can successfully transition into independence. In order to apply, just go to the YWCA Strive webpage, download the referral form, and have a worker fill it out with you. Find the link to apply below. We are everywhere. Good friend of the As Word Spreads podcast, Violet Rose Faroa, is working now on We Are Everywhere, a project bringing former youth in care with kids currently in the system for interviews that will be curated into a book. Send us an email at info at firstcallbc.org if you'd like to get involved and we'll put you in touch. The moment everyone's been waiting for, Adoption Tinder. Woohoo! We found a page called the Adopt BC Kids Portal on the MCFD website. And it's basically Tinder without the swiping, except for worse in my opinion, because you can filter kids out based on their ethnicity. The link's below, and we'd kind of like to know what you think about this. We know that way fewer kids are adopted than the number that end up in foster care. And we agree that permanency is way better than instability in one's early years. But is this kind of online matching service the best idea? Shouldn't it be the other way around, where kids and siblings are the one who get to do the picking? I mean, at least if the kids were 13 plus, like Facebook requires, if they got to 
to choose if a profile was created, and if they had the final say in what's being shared about them, I'd have fewer issues with the website. But when young people are being advertised, it just really frustrates me. No child in care should be shopped online the way someone might order a grocery delivery. We ultimately feel it's not a step forward to be marketing children online, or anywhere for that matter. However, we do like the fact that the website ensures those who are browsing are aware when a child has siblings, and if MCFD is looking to keep them together. I know countless kids who have been separated from their siblings based on placement availability. So here's a little Collective Impact update. The Vancouver-based Collective Impact Trust, which stands for Transition into Resources, Relationships, and Understanding Support Together initiative, is now in Phase 3. Some of the outcomes being worked on are a unique ID system for youth in and from care and forgiveness of TransLink fare evasion debts, as well as a proposed sliding scale for youth in care for accessing public transit. Collective impact is good people doing good work, and everybody is excited to see what comes next. Related to that is First Call's work on fostering change. Lots is happening this summer with the Fostering Change Initiative, all leading up to a day of policy advocacy at the BC Legislature in Victoria this October, and hopefully even more work in the years to come. Stakeholders are being consulted now, and the youth from the care community will be fine-tuning policy asks related to the youth and care system over the next couple of months. More on this soon. As Word Spreads is a First Call production. Thank you for listening. This was an episode of As Word Spreads. Stay tuned for more of the world as youth see it.